Hello everyone and thanks for joining us in another episode of the Zerodha Educate podcast. My name is Prateek Singh. I'm the founder and CEO of learnapp.com where we make movie-like video courses with the leaders of industry on investing and trading. So if you want to learn how to invest and trade from the brightest minds, do check out learnapp.com. Now as we record this, Nifty 50 is down 32% and the Nifty mid cap 100 and small cap 100 are down 33%, 40% respectively. Now the fall in the equity market has been a bit swift and brutal especially if you compare it with 2008 but we know you might be worried and the idea with these series of conversations was to bring you perspectives from some of the most experienced and smartest people in the fund management industry in my previous conversation we spoke about equities what to do and what not to do while equities get all the attention The bond markets are equally important too guys and they don't get any light. So in this conversation I speak to the brilliant Shiva Kumar, the head of fixed income at Axis Mutual Fund. Now Shiva has two decades of experience in the Indian asset management industry working across asset classes and functions. He was part of the startup team at Axis joining in August 2009. So he's been there since the start. Back then, he looked after products and portfolio management services. So he was responsible for leading the launch of say the Axis Signature award-winning hybrid funds. Uh in 2010 September, he was promoted to the head of fixed income and is responsible for the overall investment strategy and risk management for fixed income throughout the AMC. Before Axis AMC, he was associated with Fortis Investments. uh where he held multiple positions chiefly as a fund manager of fixed income he also led products and in 2009 he was appointed chief operating officer becoming the youngest person in the asset management industry in that role um also he laughs a lot and is very easy to understand so i think um talking to him you will really really enjoy because he loves debt uh and you can almost hear him smile um as you listen to this podcast um he also by the way worked with sundaram amc as a fund manager fixed income in the zurich india amc as a research analyst so vast vast experience in this conversation we'll talk about what's happening in the indian debt markets right now we'll also connect the economy we'll do some fundamental concepts of why you need debt in your portfolio how to pick debt funds which is really important and also what how not to pick debt funds which most people don't talk about as much so this conversation was absolutely insightful on so many levels please enjoy my conversation with shiva kumar of axis mutual fund whenever we talk about market crashes 99% of the attention is on equities but the bond markets are quite action packed as well right so not many people understand what happens in the bond markets So the idea of this conversation is to help investors get a top level understanding of the world of fixed income and I have a super interesting person with me he writes he's been doing fixed income for so long and he has some crazy ideas you probably haven't heard of from the bond world so thank you for doing this Shiva thank you thank you for having me and I sure it'll be a great conversation I'm looking forward to this Right I mean my name is Pratik I've been doing equities for such a long time I don't understand debt that well so this is more for my use than all our viewers users as well so let's talk about the first question before we talk about bonds and debt markets tell me about you how did you get started in the world of finance and why why fixed income and why is 
bonds not as uh, glamorous as equities right so i've been a mutual fund guy through and through since i uh, left college since i left ima in 1998 um, interestingly enough i started as an equities analyst a yes. uh, couple of years down the road i realized i'm my affinity or i'm drawn more towards the world of fixing uh, up uh and then then yes i think since about uh, 99 2000 i've been doing this so that makes it more than 20 years of doing uh fixing come so it's it's a long time i really enjoy this what i find interesting is in equity it's all about the story right so there's always that's where the glamour in equity comes from it's all about the bottom up stock picking trade ideas and so on and fixing come is a lot more mathematical it's a lot more methodical and it's not as uh, exciting in the sense prices don't move as uh, rapidly as uh, equities um but that also makes it more difficult to beat the market or beat my peer group because the margins are so thin and yeah. errors really show up so uh so it's it's, it's a lot harder um and then it's more interesting for me right so you know when you buy a stock i think we all understand that in essence you're part of owner as an owner of that company right that small slice of equity that you own so i think people understand that but what are bonds can you just explain me the basics of bonds and fixed income tell me about coupon maturity date just very simply top level one or two lines yeah so this in a in a in a in a stock you are sort of stock owner you are part owner or of the company right in a if you are a bond holder you are effectively a part lender to the company right so essentially the two sources of capital for any firm are one is its own capital meaning its, its share capital and the other is what it borrows and we are part of that borrowing part we are part of the Uh, 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 the lenders to any company, or for the matter, even governments or agencies, and so on and so forth. So the, the universe for bonds is slightly different from that of stocks, but the idea is the same. We invest with a view to making money, uh, uh, and unlike equities, where the future is a lot less certain because you are dependent on the performance of the company, in bonds, the future is a lot more certain because you know the yield of the bond when you buy it. Right. So if I am buying as an investor, if I am buying government bonds, uh, I'm actually. giving a loan to the government and they promise me a certain return over a period of time that's right absolutely the so if you for example buy a 10 year government bond effectively you're giving away money today the government pays you uh, an interest every 6 months and at the end of the 10 years they give you back your principal right so this is this is the contract right and most bonds are structured this way with the interest payment put you all every 6 months every 12 months in some cases it's all compounded and paid off at the end but the the, the structure is very pretty simple there is a start date There's an end date, which is called the maturity date, and there's a coupon, which is the the cash flow which you get in between, and all of these are agreed. Now, the coupon doesn't have to be fixed. The, the term fixed income doesn't mean fixed rate. It could be a floating rate, which means the coupons can get changed over time. But as long as the mechanism to set the coupon is fixed up front, it's called a fixed income instrument. So, in equity, for example, the annual cash flow is in the form of a dividend, and that is an uncertain. Therefore, it's not fixed income. So, that's the only difference. Really. That's interesting. I'm somewhat warming up to bonds a little bit. I have one question, Shiva. So, um, when I'm buying this instrument, the bond itself is also priced. So, what determines the price of the bond? Yeah. So, so let me try to explain this in a in a very simple way using a you know two two year example, right? So, for example, just using round numbers. For example, if I have a two year bond which pays ten percent a year, so that means it's a hundred rupee bond. At the end of year one, I get ten rupees back. At the end of year two, I get ten rupees, and then I get my original hundred back. Right? Now imagine a situation in which the interest rates in the economy have dropped by hundred basis points, which means if I were to buy a new bond today, I will be able to buy a bond which pays off nine percent at the end of one year, nine percent at the end of the second year, and hundred back. 
which bond is more valuable the one which pays 10% every year or the one pays 9% every year the one which is 10% every year is more valuable so therefore the price of the 10% per annum bond goes up i see that is how you make money trading bonds basically you are taking a view that the interest rates in the future are going to be lower than they are today thus improving the value of your bonds interesting so as you said as interest rates move so uh, do the uh, so the bond prices so there's a correlation over there so that's one form of risk i guess yes. there's another form of risk in bonds what is that other risk here so there are multiple risks but the two important risks one is the interest rates risk and the interest rate risk essentially scales with the maturity of the bond which means a 2 year maturity bond has less risk than a 10 year maturity bond because well you get 10 cash flows and therefore each of them value of each of them goes up the the other one is what's called credit risk which means the risk that you don't get your money back what is the company that you have lent to goes bust right right so that's that's credit risk now credit risk is is it's it's tends to be digital because you either have it or not meaning if the company survives you get your money back if it doesn't you lose a lot of it right and and so so credit risk is priced quite differently it's usually the way we look at it is we you look at the spread so a government bond is a, a um, sovereign instrument the government can print its money as much as it wants to so there's no risk there's no credit risk and all other papers they trade at a yield which is higher and that reflects the credit risk of that particular company or that issuer so that's the way we 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 price these risks the, the logic in this is if i were getting into credit risk if i diversify my portfolio then i my expected loss meaning i might have maybe one loss in my portfolio but because the yield is higher i'm still net net better off that's a that's a trade off so in a in a the yield on a credit risk uh, or when you're taking credit risk has to be significantly higher than what you do when you're buying gsex right absolutely so i think uh, with that logic the gsex will probably be relatively the safest uh, yes. because the, the country needs to go bust for it to to uh, you're right like. you're right so the G, the gsec yields in theory the government cannot default right because well, they have the ability the government can come print as many rupees as you want so so you know you they can just repay every bond by just printing currency and giving it to you so in theory they cannot default so then why is it that bond bond government bond yields go up and down mm-hmm. right because you know it's it comes down to the fact that if the government actually prints and throws money out there then the inflation goes up yes so because everybody has more rupees in hand the same amount of goods more money chasing same amount of goods prices are going up so there is a there is this even though the sovereign is able to print its way out of the mess it yeah. really cannot without creating an inflation spike so and that links up to the yield on the bonds which means the higher the inflation rate the higher the yield because you know we want to be compensated if the, if if inflation is rising or even inflation is expected to remain high i want to be compensated by asking for a higher yield that perfectly makes sense so coming back to credit uh, risk the safest would be would be bonds and the worst case would probably be an unknown company who's offering a 17 18 20% coupon uh, on their on their on their return yeah so when you see the gradation uh, you go from what's called um, sovereign gsex yeah. to corporate bonds which would be investment grade starting from aaa which is the safest to aaa b which is more less safe and then you have what's called speculative grade which is which is otherwise known as junk bonds where yeah, there is significantly higher so fortunately when when it comes to the mutual fund world you are really talking about only investment grade and uh, gsex so uh, we don't really play that much uh, into any significant amount outside that and and even within that really 
the best grades which are the AAA and the AA bonds. And even that's diversified. So if you're investing in a corporate bond fund, it's yes. diversified into many other companies. Yes. And it's very, you know, diversification in bonds works very differently from diversification in stocks. Yeah. Yeah, you know. So for example, if I'm running a stock portfolio and I really like 40 companies, as an example, or maybe 30 companies if I'm sure. really taking, you know, a concentrated portfolio, right? 30 or 40 companies. That's a reasonably diversified portfolio. Now, mm-hmm. If I want to buy a 41st company into my portfolio, I'm not necessarily buying a best idea. I mean, in a sense, already my top top 40 best ideas are already in there. I'm just buying one more. It potentially dilutes performance. Correct. But not that much more diversification. Mm-hmm. But in bonds, that's not the way it works. You know, it, because yields are known upfront when I buy, let's say if I'm buying a portfolio of double rated bonds, if I buy 10 bonds of each 10% of my portfolio, I get the same yield as if I buy 50 bonds at 2% each of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Because yield on each AA bond is roughly the same. So I can right. keep on diversifying without reducing my performance. Right? The only difference is, what if something goes wrong? If I have a concentrated portfolio of 10 bonds with 10% each, if one goes wrong, I can lose up to 10% of my fund. But if I have a diversified portfolio of 50 bonds at 2% each, if I make one mistake, I just lose 2%. Right? So, so in, in fixed income, diversification always benefits you, especially in credit. That's interesting. Um, the next question I wanted to ask you was, now when markets crash, let's talk about equity and what's happening right now. So when markets crash, and when we say markets, everyone assumes it's equity. Right. <laughs> Uh, we know equity has fallen. That means NAVs will fall. Uh, investors freak out. They stop their SIPs. Uh, and people understand generally what a market crash is. So when equity falls, what generally happens to bond markets? And let's suppose equity continues to fall, as hypothetical as an example. Let's suppose equity falls another 20% over the X number of months. Suppose. What's going to happen to bond markets then? Yeah. So the... Uh, the equity and bond markets work at very different parts of the economic cycle. When the economy is doing really well, typically growth is very high it, and typically companies are investing, they are borrowing more, they are, uh, in, you know, growth and inflation rates are usually going up, which also therefore means that interest rates are probably going up, which is bad news for bonds. Meaning, typically a, a very strong equity bull market is also a period of relatively weak bond market performance. You go back to 2004 to 2008, you had very strong equity performance, actually really poor bond performance. And then if you look at other periods, for example, like, you know, go again, taking the 2008 example, 2008, 2009, there was a huge equity market crash as people re- started really rethinking, you know, is this a financial crisis of sorts and whether growth will come down. And it did for a period of time. Uh, uh, people's expectations about growth inflation came down. That was very poor for stocks, but very, very good for bonds. So bonds and stocks do tend to do very differently across uh, uh, parts of the economic cycle. And and that's how, that's how we see this as building blocks of a portfolio. It's not about stocks versus bonds. It's really about what each of these do in your portfolio together rather than what you look at. So that's what I'm trying to say is that it's almost impossible to predict which way the economy will go three years, five years, ten years from today. The way to do manage your portfolio is not just to look at it as I'm going to put all my eggs in one asset, but rather to diversify it. Makes sense. Uh, another follow-up question may be silly, uh, but as markets fall, and let's suppose we're in an interest cut cycle, so we expect interest rates to fall down, do bonds, bond yields generally go up yes. because of that? that bond, well, bond, bond yields go down and bond prices go up. Right. So the yield is, the, is the rate of, roughly the rate of interest. So, so the yields tend to go down with lower interest rates, and, and therefore the bond prices tend to go up. 
and that's typically it's like for example what has happened over the last 12 months or last 18 months we've had the 10 year gsec yields coming down from closer to you know let's say close to 8.5% but well above 8% now down close to 6% so over the last year and a half we've had a significant economic slowdown which has been accompanied by a sliding bond yield environment and and bond prices have gone up during this period of time explain me this i need to understand this properly so two cycles i have the 10 year bond uh, yield in front of me and i see two major moves right the first move is from 1996 percent right. yield down yes. to 2004 which is yes. uh, after the dot com <laughs> recovery we were down to something like uh, uh, much under 6% right almost yes. five and a half so we are closer to 5% at the moment yeah right. so that yeah. yeah well yes so uh, let's leave the early part of the 90s aside or mid 90s aside a bit because the economy was really going through a transformation during that period of uh, just after liberalization right so if you sure. go if you step a little bit forward into let's say 1998 1999 when you know post wto things had started to calm down after the uh, 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 asian financial crisis mm-hmm. and you were at the peak of the dot com era uh, econ- people were expecting economic growth to have moved permanently to a higher level and uh, uh, in a sense uh, pe- great things were being expected stock markets were booming um, and bond yields were relatively high you were in, into double digits and then suddenly you had two big crashes you had the stock market crash led by the dot coms yeah. and then you had 9/11 and therefore you had this two big hits to the global economy economic growth across the world crash you had big recession in the us and many other parts of the world and even in india you saw a big uh, slowdown so what happens when you have a slowdown of that magnitude is people's expectation of inflation go down people's expectation of growth goes down and you had that double digit interest rate come down to about 5% over a period of the next 2 to 3 years and that was an extraordinary period i mean i think uh, i don't think we will really repeat a performance of that magnitude well because when we started then it was 11 on 12% on the 10 year gsec and we came all the way down to 5% which is like 600 700 basis points move and you're today starting at 6 yeah. i don't think it is zero so <laughs> yeah yeah i think something similar happened in 2008 right sorry something similar happened in 2008 so july oh, right. 2008 8.6% uh, yes. then right after the crash the yields also crashed and he went to something like what 6.1% so that so we were again at the bottom at about 5% so you you were over 9% in about july august of 2008 yeah. interestingly enough even as late as july august when the world economy was practically already in recession the rbi was still hiking rates um keeping liquidity tight the reason was because oil was very high some of you may remember that oil was 145 dollars at the peak yes. at that point of time and people were calling for 200 plus um, oil and so so the worry was it's going to be an runaway inflation and the rbi was actually tightening monetary policy which was leading yields to remain elevated and then of course lehman happened everybody yeah. had to change their view <laughs> and the following 3 months you saw again 9% to 5% a lot of the violent move because it was just 3 months Uh, 300 400 basis points in just 3 months that was, that was very very violent um, and of course the bounce back was quite sharp as well because you know from december of 2008 to about february or march of 2009 we moved from 5 to 7 and a half so again you had a violent sell off um, that was more because of the budget that year right so actually talking of rbi cutting rates past couple of weeks uh, they had bunch of liquidity measures right and we had the uh, rbi announce uh, that liquidity cut now uh, the rate cut also made liquid and ultra short firms seeing a negative return so that's not normal right so uh, 
how does this work? And we don't tend to see negative returns over short periods, even for these funds. So why yeah. did that happen? So, yeah. So, you know, one of the things to consider is that all bonds or all debt instruments, whether they are commercial papers, which are very, very short duration to G6, which can be very long duration, all carry some amount of risk in terms of price risk. Typically, yeah. the price risk of these short term instruments, which are one month, two months to maturity, tend to be so small that they, are, they don't really register in the NAVs. Of, of mutual funds, liquid funds especially. Um, but when you have very large movements, and we've seen over the last couple of weeks, very large movements in yields or rates, simply because of this disconnection that we have seen after this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, uh, and, you know, bond markets you know, are slightly different from stocks. In the stock markets, trade on the exchange, you know, you see our screen, you put out orders on the screen and it gets executed. In bonds, it's all over the phone. Uh, we have, we have, our dealing rooms are staffed with people who are typically talking to counterparties. We have uh, you know, we have hotlines. You know, this this dealing rooms and bonds really haven't changed in the last twenty years. They look much the same. But the problem is, when when these dealers go home, they don't have access to their hotlines and their dealer boards. Their efficiency just drops. So right. Market liquidity has just vanished for the last couple of weeks. And when you have illiquid markets, you do see much larger price swings, even wow. on what will otherwise be safe instruments. You know, if somebody wants to sell into an illiquid market, it's not like you know, if, if you look at again a stock market example, a very small. Uh, a small cap uh, stock, if somebody were to come and hit very large volumes, the price tends to move. Uh, and that's the same way, suddenly just imagine that if your entire GSEC market became a small cap stock, meaning the volumes just vanished, then, then the prices of everything begins to move, even the most safest instruments. So we saw that for a couple of weeks. The good news is RBI is out there and has added liquidity, has cut rates, and has broadly stabilized the market. So I think in that sense, I think RBI this time has been very proactive. Uh, post Lehman, they took about three, two to three weeks uh, to sort of start acting in terms of liquidity. We saw a split day of two, three weeks or more in 2013 when there was a mini taper tantrum crisis. But this time around, within two weeks, I think you know, it's less than two weeks, they're out there with the big guns. So I think RBA is also learning from the past and has figured out that they need to be a lot more proactive or, or reactive, but react faster. Makes sense. So uh, something about the, the macro picture uh, your, your, your view on this, right? So the COVID-19 situation, what's happening with the economy? I've never seen business, I mean, partly shut down. Like that's never happened before. Even 2008, we didn't see it. So how bad is it for business? Should investors be worried? Yeah, but in 2008, businesses in India didn't shut down. Businesses in the, in the West shut down. Yes. <laughs> so, so imagine if you are in the in, in the U.S. and you are in mortgage industry. Suddenly, one fine day, the, you know, a lot of large parts of the industry just vanished. Right. So, and if you go back to 2001, again, we had a mini dot com crash, but in the West, so many companies just went out of business. So, yeah. when you have these kind of big crashes, you know, the 2001. So, roughly about once in 10 years, if you think about it, because the peak was 1999, another peak was 2008, 2009, and maybe in, 19, in, in 2019. Okay. So maybe once in about 10 years or so, you get, you know, maybe it's just, it's just uh, happening within a year or so of the 10-year anniversary. Uh, you get this kind of big shock to the system. Uh, but this time around, of course, there's a pandemic, which means it doesn't matter whether you are in New York or whether you are in Mumbai. You're gonna, you're, your cities are in lockdown. There are two big impacts, right? One is supply chains are getting disrupted. Imagine if you are waiting for your stuff to, so if you're a manufacturer, your factory is shut because, well, you don't have the product coming in from China or wherever else. The prices of those products go up because, you know, some factories are offline and, and therefore we've seen prices move up in electronics, we've seen prices move up in pharmaceuticals and chemicals because China is so big in these, in these sectors, right? Mm-hmm. 
So there's a little bit of an inflationary worry or price worry, but there's also a shutdown worry. The second is a little bit more longer lasting and more painful, which is we are seeing a lot of perishable industries which will take huge knocks. And here the perishable is not vegetables. Perishables yeah. are like hotel rooms, airline tickets, ah, events. Right? Okay. Which are cannot be stored and carried forward. In that sense, perishable. Right. Hotels unoccupied. You know, if you're a manufacturer and you lost one month's business because your factory was shut, you can come back and make it up in future months by ramping up production. Yeah. But if your hotel room is unsold, your there's time... nothing to about it. It's unsold, right? Yeah. yeah. And for the global economy, services is such a much larger part of the economy than manufacturing. Right. So that means that a large part of this services economy is going to get shut. Right? It doesn't it's not every part of the services economy. I mean, financial services, etc., are still running. But yeah. you you have all these touch points, travel and tourism, airlines, um, uh, hotels and so on and so forth, restaurants. And these are also sectors which you really cannot fix as a central banker. You can cut rates, you can add liquidity. But because just because your interest rate came down, does it mean you're going to go to a restaurant? No. Does it mean you're going to go take a flight? No. So there are certain crises which can be managed through rate cuts and liquidity and some which cannot. And I think this is one of those situations where people are asking themselves, what is a way out? Because despite rate cuts, etc., we don't see the economy coming back. Yeah. We need something of a very large, different um, magnitude of, of fix. Uh, and I think the governments are responding globally, but it's, this is going to take time. So when you look at the two parts, the, the supply shutdowns measured in weeks, maybe a month or two, I think the problem with the demands slowdown in the service sector, the impact will be visible for quarters. And I think that's the reason why people are really resetting their expectations for growth and inflation. Right? Because this is now likely that you're going to see a depressed uh, consumer environment for perhaps a couple of quarters at least, maybe for longer than that. So you are seeing, you know, extraordinary times. Uh, first, stay safe, stay indoors, you know, social distancing and all that. Personally, take care of yourself because your portfolios will come back, but your health can't come back if you take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. The same thing applies to the economy, right? The economy will bounce back. But if you have a pandemic, which takes out a large part of the workforce, which takes out a large part of uh, what you do for that. human toll, that's not something you can come back from. So, so you know, the shutdowns are necessary. It causes enough panic in the near term, but I think it's okay from a medium-term perspective. Correct, yeah. That, that makes sense. So I think earlier, uh, Shiva, we talked about why sh- someone shouldn't only be totally in equities and totally in bonds, and, it, and they should probably mix it because it's not that debt doesn't do well. Uh, you were talking about debt versus equities before we started uh, our talk here, about five-year periods. Can you walk me through that? Sure. So I was just looking at the data uh, because we do this every quarter and every year. Uh, we look at the performance of these asset classes. And today it's very interesting that when you take an index of government securities, which is uh, the most liquid and the safest assets within uh, debt, over the last one year, three year, five year, 10 year, 20 year, 25 years, uh, an index of GSEX has beaten Nifty. How is that possible? <laughs> right. So this is one of those fundamental things that we are all taught in the long term equity beats everything else, right? But no, um, uh, in, over the last 25 years, meaning 31st March, if you had invested money in 31st March 1995 and, and held it on till 31st March 2020, you are better off holding GSEX than if you were than you were better off uh, than you were holding in, in Nifty. It's an astonishing turn of events. And this is not true about only about India. 
in the in the rest of the world 20 30 40 year data shows that you know bonds have done as well maybe better than equities there was a study in the us which went back i think 120 years and they looked at 30 year rolling you know when you look at india our history goes back 25 years because liberalization yeah. mid 90s right? so we don't there's no point in looking back data much before that but in the west you have data for going 100 120 years and they found that rolling 30 years there is no evidence to suggest that one outperforms the other meaning it's a 50 50 chance over a 30 year time frame whether you make more money in debt or equity in the indian context for the last 25 years if you slice that into five year rolling periods so 31st march 2015 to 2020 okay 31st sorry 28 feb 2015 to feb 20 and so on so every month you slice this and create so many um Uh, five-year rolling period. You find that about half and half equities do better or bonds do better. There is no evidence, or there is no way I can stand here and tell you 2020 to 2025 which is going to do better, debt or equity. There is, I don't think that anyone can predict that. It's and like I said, over 20-25 years, there is no evidence to suggest that one can do better. Wow, this is just surprising. <laughs> So this this is one of those things which I'm known for. People, you know, when when uh, I when I make presentations, I often lead with this data, this data point. That, excuse me, I often lead with this data point that over 20, 25 years, bonds have been in stocks. And it's not. It's okay. I must say this is not because of this fall in stock prices in the last month. This has been going on for a long period of time. The uh, the the long term return chart has been the data has been outperforming equity for a long time. So it just. goes to show that you know for many investors they think it's equity is the only way of making money but you really do need to balance your portfolio it's got nothing to do i'm not saying this because you need to balance your portfolio purely from a risk perspective i'm saying balance your portfolio from a returns perspective you will be rewarded for running a balanced portfolio simply because debt has different characteristics and similar performances equity that's actually a really good point because whenever we talk of debt we say to uh, to to make your portfolio more balanced to make it safer to provide fixed returns Uh, to add some cushion, and no one's ever comparing returns with equity and debt. So this was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, the, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where it's completely counterintuitive, right? Because yes. you study, you know, if you, even if you've gone to MBA school, you've done your capital asset pricing model, which tells you higher returns for higher risk. Yes, there is no evidence, and within equities, there is no evidence. So we've looked at, for example, that. Uh, Over, uh, for example, breaking down equities by quintiles of risk. So the highest beta, next highest beta, cat, right. you know, at a stock level, right? And if you see that the high, the lowest beta stocks have performed the best over ten years or more, mm. and the highest beta stocks tend. So it's completely the opposite of what Cap Capm tells you, right? The and and what what is true about within equities across different beta classes is also true between equity and debt. Meaning there is no evidence to suggest that the higher risk asset class gives you higher returns. Yeah, yeah, that, that that totally makes sense. I think those boring, slow-moving stocks are the one what made Warren Buffett old and rich, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. It's 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 really that sort of boring businesses with with non-flashy, which have really worked for a lot of investors. But you know, we must understand that you know, again, uh, uh, Buffett is not a hundred percent equity invested at all points of time. He holds cash. He waits for the right time, and then he gets deployed. I think we we need to take the same attitude. I mean, I think uh, if you take a asset allocation approach and you have cash on hand, partly that you use it as a cushion, as you said, to wait for a red opportunity to buy equities, but also because it makes sense to have it in your portfolio. That's a good point. You know, I wanted to address this. That just a couple of years ago, I think Buffett was sit, sitting on something like eighty billion or ninety billion dollars in cash, 
Uh, that's something very interesting for all of us to know. I, I don't exactly know the exact number, but he was sitting in cash. I mean, and good God, in retrospect, now it sounds like such a good idea. Um, so I guess you're right. He's going to probably play the cycle. But coming back to debt, uh, you said that debt should be seen from a returns perspective as well. Love that. But one question, there's 16 categories of debt mutual fund. <laughs> really confusing. Uh, can you tell me maybe three or four categories which people should just focus and learn about? Yeah, and I think uh, the category categories really comes down to the different types of bonds in the market and client preferences because it's not all about only uh, you know certain types of clients. Some clients prefer lower risk, some want higher risk, some want different types of risks. So SEBI has responded to that by creating all these categories. It doesn't mean they're all relevant for, for, for everyone. For the most part, we, we tell investors, look at short duration funds. Uh, these are funds which typically have less than three years to duration. There's a category called short duration funds, which is a one to three year bucket, but it doesn't have to be limited to the funds labeled as such. You can easily go and find funds which run strategies, which are less than three years, you know, give or take a little bit. You can go to four years if you want to. But the idea is these do these uh, do, at, at a level of about between one to three years of duration, the risk is manageable in terms of the annual volatility of returns. But it also gives you some reasonable return pickup over just pure holding cash or cash equivalent assets. So, yeah. So that's that's like a, a basic product. Then, of course, many investors have looked at the so-called credit risk funds. But it, yeah. it's a niche product. It is not a core holding, meaning it's it should be seen as a, as a satellite holding for your basic short-term fund. Once you have your corpus in your safe, AAA-oriented short-term fund, you can probably throw in uh, some allocation towards a credit product just to give you a higher yield. Um, and then they work over long periods of time. Obviously, the last year, year and a half has been a challenge for that category. But, you know, over, over three years, five years, they've held their own. Isn't it a little risky? Maybe I know you're not in the job of predicting and just a job of managing, but given the current situation, maybe a credit risk fund is should be avoided at this time. Or uh... Yeah, I think you have time on your hands. Basically, what happens when you have an uncertain environment like right now is your government securities and AAA bonds tend to react quickly in terms of lower yields. They, in a sense, their prices go up faster. Whereas credit papers, people are evaluating, you know, is it the right time to be entering this? Etc. So just as uh, a retail investor may choose not to invest in a credit paper, much the same way an institution may decide to hold a higher allocation to GSEX. So our expectation also is in the same way that you know in the near term, the better performers probably will be the AAA products or the AAA oriented portfolios. You have time on your hands if you want to make a credit allocation, wait it out, see how it develops and then make a choice. Right. So categories within debt funds, you first said... Um, you Short duration about- I think is the number one pick. If you were to pick another category or one or two more categories, one is if you have um, sort of your uh, uh, rainy day fund, in a sense, what you want as a safe asset, please pick a fund which is even shorter duration. It could be like a liquid fund, but I suggest anything in the in the lower duration, which is less than one year duration, uh, low duration funds. That's, that's a, uh, there are again two, three categories there, ultra short, low duration, etc. Pick any of them um, uh, depending on your uh, choice. Again, stay in the high quality, meaning the AAA, A1 plus type of portfolios rather than the higher risk portfolios because this is at the end of the day an any day fund. This is what you want to keep aside for, for, for safety. So so these are the two categories which make sense for most investors. Credit is a third category for some investors. And then of course you can go in and find some special situation products which add value. But then I cannot advise everybody to buy everything because it then becomes complicated. But there are a lot of interesting products in the industry which I think can be slotted in for specific needs. I think yeah. if you have specific time horizon or if you have some specific needs, certainly you can look at some of those uh, some of those products. Uh, ca- the, uh, when I mentioned duration, you know, when you look at the category names, 
they could be like short duration funds it could be banking and psu debt funds or corporate bond funds so so for, ignore the labels all these labels by and large funds in these labels tend to run short duration so go on the basis of the portfolio and the duration rather than the pure label i mean for sure the sebi categorization can be easier done i can say this i know you can't <laughs> but it will yeah, be a lot so easier for us yeah right and it, it is a little complex um uh and you know i'm not sure whether the initial objective um, right. which was which is sort of to say, in some sense it has been simplified um the objective of the regulator was to make the product labels clear for investors i yes. think that clarification is is has been done the second part which is making it easier to choose i, I think it, you know may, maybe it requires a little bit more work in terms of i think industry also needs to communicate what exactly these funds are who is it for in a much simpler easier way right so i think i guess it's always work in progress but i hopefully we'll we'll see some change there so let's talk about gilt fund shiva um gilt is one of the safest in the category right relatively uh, but it has the smallest aum why is that it's the lowest yield i mean it's as simple as that i think investors when you when you look at when you look at why you come in why why you buying a fixed income product is because well you want that income and yeah uh, yields are the lowest um uh, they tend to be more volatile especially because yields are very low um the the investors and the fund managers try to buy more interest rate risk in a with a view to getting a higher return on their investments but then that makes them more volatile so for all of these reasons you know gilt funds have never really found um a, a strong shall we say appetite in the market i think it's fair for most investors buying a triple a product makes more sense than buying a gilt fund uh, so again it see it gilt funds i think serve the needs for some specific type of investors who need that um, that low, that zero zero credit risk i would say zero credit risk it's not a zero risk right are, are those kinds of uh, who are these kinds of people are they people uh, looking for a retirement fund as it those kind of people no it, it, it is a little bit meaning some uh, pfs do buy gilt funds some uh, uh, you know corporate and institutional investors who want specific um you know, products you know they come with a specific duration mentality in mind they want to buy it for a short period of time with knowing very clearly what that asset class is what the liquidity is because at the end of the day g6s are highly liquid so the yeah. impact cost of trading them is very low so yeah. there are specific type of investors who want that uh, those characteristics but not necessarily applicable to everybody right so let's be honest right when a retail guy is trying to buy uh, fixed income products um he doesn't understand star ratings he doesn't understand right. duration in most cases or he'll mostly look at returns to be honest right and then he'll find something to invest in so right. tell me what should a new investor absolutely he shouldn't do like what's some advice there that he should look out for when he's trying to buy or when he's trying to add debt okay. thank you very much for this question first <laughs> don't look at returns yeah in 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 debt is again I, I i go back to the example i gave earlier right the 10% bond and 9% bond right so let's take the 10% bond okay the end of first year it pays 10% at the end of second year it pays 10% and then it gives you 100 rupees back right so 10 10 and then 100 back now imagine that the interest rate in the economy has shifted to 9% okay so what that means is your 10% at the end of the first year and the 10% at the end of the second year suddenly become much more valuable because what happens is you, your next best opportunity it's called it's opportunity cost literally the next best bond you can buy is at 9% so therefore this bond the first bond you're willing now to pay a higher price for it right so let's say at the end of the first year the yields have now dropped to 9% which means at the end of the first year the 
the bond is now trading at a price of 101 rupees. The logic being that from from for the next year I will get 10 rupees coupon, but I will lose one rupee because I only get 100 of my principal back. The the price of the bond has now risen to 101, which means I make one rupee one rupee more in coupon, but I will lose one rupee in capital. Right? The historic return of this bond looks very good because I got 10% 10 rupee coupon and I got a 1 rupee gain. Yeah, so it looks like so, it's a high yield. Yeah, so my returns for the last one year is 11. Yeah. But my return for the next one year is going to be 9. Okay. Well, well because the bond only pays you 10 plus 10 plus 100 back. Right? right. So if you already upfronted the one, you need to give it up in the future. So the, going the other way, if the interest rate environment had actually shifted to 11%, hmm. Well, the bond is going to trade at 99. Yeah. Right? So which means my when you look at it from year two perspective, I'm going to earn 10 rupees back, but I get one rupee back in capital gain. My 99 becomes 100. And therefore I make 11 bucks. But my returns are looking really poor because my past returns, 10 rupees coupon, but minus one capital loss. Right. So my past return is looking very poor. Right? Which would you rather want to invest? Would you rather invest after seeing a return of 11 or after seeing a return of 9 because the end payoff is the same. Yes. <laughs> right. So the, unfortunately, this is the unfortunate fact of bond funds life is when the returns are the best, the future returns are poor because, well, yields are the worst. And when the yields are at the peak, the returns are the worst. I think this is one of the more interesting parts of the entire conversation uh, that, that the entire retail space, when they look at returns, I mean, they're completely misplaced. Um, yeah, because, you know, when you look at equities versus bonds, again, this is fundamentally different because in equities, prices go up because expectation of future income going up, right? Future growth is better. Therefore, future dividends are better. In bonds, prices go up, but the future income is the same. Yes. Therefore, your must look, whatever you have made in, whatever you are upfronted, meaning your prices have gone up, meaning your upfronted future returns. Yes. So you must lose that in the future. So this is something which is, which is absolutely fundamental. Please don't invest on the basis only of past performance. I mean, it's only because cost performance is important because it tells you the ability of the manager or the portfolio, the style, etc. So there is some 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 value there, but you cannot invest only on the basis of past performance. You must look at what the what the future holds in terms of what is the yield on the portfolio, what is the what's the portfolio looking like. And I think that's if I can just leave that one message. Yeah, my job here is done today. <laughs> Anything else you want to say that when what should someone look after when he's buying a buy anything else? No, I think I think see, so. So returns is one aspect. Quality of the portfolio is important. Please don't get into herd behavior. Again, a couple of years back, everybody was buying only credit risk funds, thinking that you know that's a great story. Last year, this you know I heard this this incredible phrase that in in debt it's only risk and no return, and in equity it's returns and no risk. And, you know, you know, when you hear phrases like that, that you're that, at the top. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, something is going to blow. And please don't go by these, these kind of truisms or these kind of phrases because they do tend, it's not as simple as that. There is a, there's a reason these two assets exist, they're different assets. And like, again, come back to the same point, past performance is not equal to future performance. Um, keep that in mind. And then again, go back to the earlier point I made about diversification of your portfolio. Please have debt funds in your portfolio and don't just buy liquid funds. Buy something which has duration in it because that will help you diversify your equity risk. It's extremely important, especially when you're look, looking at long periods of time. L- long term is not one to three years. Long term is your 
time to retirement long term is like 5 10 15 20 plus years in that time horizon you will see cycles you will yeah. see equity markets go up and down the upsides and downsides we can we've seen swings of 30 40 50% up and down in equities bonds can swing up and down by 8 9 10% in a year accept that amount of volatility in a year but over a period of time you should be able to get a good mix on your portfolio by buying both in Makes sense. Um, Shiva, before we close, let's talk a little bit more about you. Uh, you've been in the Indian markets for a while, right? So how do you personally invest? What's your uh, style and any mistakes you want to share in your investing journey? Yes, lots of things, a lot of these things. My personal style, when you took, uh, my personal portfolio reflects exactly what I said today. It is very dead heavy. Okay, that's, you know, fundamentally, that's, that's the way I am built. Um, but the personal investing style is, see, I have come around to this view over over my investing horizon that things are never what it seems on face value. Yeah. What that means is you always need to understand the second order effects of what you're doing, what you're getting into. The first order effect of something is what's immediate and obvious. Okay? So there is there's the RBI cuts interest rates, therefore bond prices should go up. That's a first order effect. Yeah. The second order effect is what if the markets already priced that in, meaning the markets are already ahead of expectations. Yeah, we cut 25 basis points, but market expected 50. Therefore, actually, markets sell off. Markets, we have seen this time and again in the past when an interest rate reduction often leads to bond yields going up or prices going the wrong way, prices going down. This seems absolutely bizarre. And over the long time, over, over time, what I realized is the second order effect significantly dominates the first order effect. So you have to be really, really thinking two steps ahead of everyone else. You can't be mm. one step ahead. Everyone is one step ahead already. Yeah. You have to be two steps ahead, three steps ahead if you really want to beat the market, if you really want to. And that, that, that just is just the way it is. And, and the only way to do that is to really broaden your way of thinking. You can't be thinking just in terms of the news flow of the day or the hour. You make your investment strategies. Look a little ahead. Uh, see what will happen, let's say, a year from now or a couple of years from now. And then make your investment decisions based on Yeah, I think uh, also digressing a little bit, a lot of hedge funds trade bonds for this reason. Like a lot of known knowns are there and you can make mathematical models around it. You can trade it with equity things. I think it's just very glamorous and people just lose their way sometimes. Well, you know, equities, equities is, is glamorous when you are not, when you're just looking at it as a trade. But when you look at it as a profession, as we do, right, because we are sitting there every day, it's as mathematical or as, as involved or as, as technical as anything else. It's just different, right? Um, so, so give you an example of um, uh, analyst job in equities versus fiction. Right? So we right. share at, at our firm, we you know at, at, at Axis AMC, we share our equities and fixed income analysts. I mean, they work together. And it's a stock which is already covered by an equities analyst, I don't tell my credit analyst to cover it all the way from ground up. I just say you know take the models from these guys. But there's a fundamental difference. Equity guys are always looking for upside. Yeah. So, if you're like for example, if it's a pharmaceutical company, they will say these are the three big products. This is the fourth product which is down the pipeline. If it comes, this is the upside on this. Uh, on. But when you're, if you're looking at the same pharma company as a credit analyst, you're going to say, oh, this company has three products. What if one of them fails? Or what if one right. of them gets banned? What if one of them, you know, it's just What's my credit risk? It's, it's just the, the, the model, the building base is exactly the same. It's just the way you approach it is very different when you're buying it as a credit analyst or if you're buying that as, a, as, a, as an equities analyst. And that is, is just, it's just, it's just about equally methodical. It's just different. Shiva, I must say, you speak really well. Your clarity of thought is, is just super, right? Because we prepare these outlines to make sure 
that we don't lose our conversation but you just articulate brilliantly like such a good job shiva thank you so much very kind uh, <laughs> one last question before i leave any investors do you admire and any must read books uh, that you want to recommend <laughs> in the long period of time i mean this is a, these these are difficult questions because firstly there are so many out there right so many investors so many uh, the, the investment grades you you do see you know you mentioned we, we talked about buffett earlier but there are so many others in the investment world uh, you know i've been following uh, ray dalio and rich waters for the last 20 uh, close to 20 years and same as the case with so many other major global investors and of course domestic investors uh, uh, my boss here is sandesh nigam who's you know uh, uh, famous in his own way in equities as a fund manager for for the last few decades uh, so many indian other fund managers who i have worked with over the years so i, I don't want to sit and name every one of them i think it's going to be a long list your other question about books uh, here i have a very different take i think uh, yeah, if you're getting into the weeds of investing then yes by all means get into the depths of depths of otherwise my suggestion is get broad yeah get first guess read the standards right read how to be little book that beat the market and you know buffett's letters and uh, uh, benjamin graham if you want right read all that stuff if you want but then go broad right where the where you know the, the, this days with social media you get so much information right so you have and i don't mean instagram it's all about you know it's, it's blogs and twitter and There's so much out there. People publishing so much information for free. It's amazing what you have out there, right? So, and then, then I, for myself, I do a lot of time. I read a lot of um, uh, papers. I read um, economists, a lot of economists. They they publish work, etc. Because I, I, that's the way I roll. But that is not necessarily true about a lot of people. But I think there are so many uh, good books. Um, uh, uh, but if nothing else to speak up um, uh, banerji and duflos uh, in your recent uh, books in core economics or something and you will be happy thank you so much for your time shiva i really enjoyed this thank you very much have a good day you too and uh, to all of your viewers have fun stay safe this conversation is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice mutual fund investments are subject to market risks Read all scheme related documents carefully. Please consult your financial advisors before making investments.